Life Audio. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Sparkle Speak. I'm your host, Catherine. Please join me in tuning into this special conversation with Molly McDonald. Molly is the founder and CEO of The Pink Fund, a nonprofit that provides 90-day non-medical cost of living expenses on behalf of breast cancer patients in active treatment so they can focus on healing, raising their families, and returning to the workplace. Molly is also a breast cancer sur thriver herself. In today's episode, we discuss how fear often drives us to sin and how God stepping in at just the right time feels purposeful. We discuss trusting God with finances and how praying specific prayers often opens our eyes to his goodness and provision. After a few words from our sponsors, please enjoy hearing from Molly. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. So I was raised in the Episcopalian faith and church attendance was a regular part of my life growing up. So every Sunday we attended Christ Church in Gross Point, Michigan. Um, I was baptized as an infant in that church. And then around the age of 12, I went through confirmation classes where allegedly that was where we came of age to begin to fully understand who God was and who Christ was. But I didn't understand any of that. And I was really only there because I was required to be there. Um, and I recall my confirmation to me was more about the new suit and shoes that I was going to get to wear um, for the ceremony. So um went to church my entire life. Um, lived in Europe for about a year and had a situation where I wanted to come home early. And I remember my father uh, asking me to pray about that, which had never really happened before. I mean, we didn't pray before dinner. Um, I don't think we had a Bible in the home. We didn't refer to biblical verses. I do recall my parents talking about sort of the um, Easter Sunday Christians, you know, the people only showed up at church on the holidays. So in 1982, I married a man um, whose family were Baptists, and his uh, brother married us or performed the ceremony. And I was not a born-again Christian at the time. I really didn't even know. I'd heard about that, but I didn't really know what that meant. And I remember his brother coming over to our house, and the family was having a big discussion because my husband was... <clears throat> I'm going to say allegedly born again. Um, and so there, there was this huge concern that we were going to be unequally yoked and that I really should, you know, not be marrying him and he should not be marrying me. And 
I recall looking at his brother at the time and saying, um, I think this was maybe like a Wednesday night he came over. And, and at that point I was living with my fiance and I said, well, Byron, I'm not going to be born again by Sunday. So I just need to know, are you going to perform this ceremony or not? Because if not, I need to find somebody else. So uh, he performed the ceremony probably out of some pressure from his mother. Um, and then it was fall. We were married in July and it was fall and I had been employed in the newspaper business and was not accustomed to being at home during the week. And I had nothing to do and I didn't know anybody. And I'd been in the workforce for so long that I had not established relationships with women in the suburbs. I, I did not have children at this point. <clears throat> I was not a regular tennis, golf or bridge player. And much of the lives of these women in 1982 were around, you know, of course, raising their children and participating in community activities and sports. So <laughs> I didn't know what to do with my time. And my mother-in-law was the community Bible study teacher in Birmingham, Michigan. And so I remember thinking, well, you know, I should really just go to community Bible study out of respect for her with no intention of really learning anything or mm -hmm. participating. And so I went to community Bible study every Monday. And after about a while, I began to see things differently and began to question what being a Christian really meant and, and how it played out in my life. And so I told her, she came over one day and I told her that I thought I was ready to accept Christ as my, as my savior. And I prayed with her and I did that. And then the following spring, I was baptized by immersion in the Baptist church. And that was um, an important moment. I will say my parents were not particularly happy about that, but mm. um and then for about the next, oh, about, about 20 years, um, I was a member of that church and participated in community Bible study and then um, other women's groups, prayer groups, and those, all those kinds of things. But I went through a devastating divorce from that man in 19, between 1997 and 2000, it took three years. And this, I had the support of the church through that time. And I remember thinking based on his behaviors and choices that um, I wanted to be sure that my decisions were made carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully. So uh, there were biblical reasons that allowed me to leave the marriage with my children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into my next question for you, which is um, what experiences have you had that have kind of helped to shape or maybe even change your view of God? Or have there been significant seasons or moments that have really defined your faith journey for you? So I had to basically leave this marriage with <clears throat> no future, no money, um, and actually no support from my husband's family who had a very hard time believing the activities he was involved in for which there was physical evidence uh, that were that were true. I mean, they were 
deniers. It was just too painful for them. So I put myself under the authority of the deacons at the church. And then I began, I was so frightened. I had these five young children. They were four to 13 at the time. And we, we moved very quickly and rented a house, but I saw God's hand in a lot of this. So when I knew I had to leave the marriage, so I drive up the driveway to our home in, in August of 97, I see this note on the front door and I find out that the house is going to be auctioned off at a sheriff's sale in 30 days. And then all the money that my husband um, had acquired and, and worked for was being used to front a deal um, that had not culminated and never did, in fact. So I started relying on scripture right away because I didn't know, I had no other way to figure out how this was going to work. And I, I had to put my complete and utter trust in that God would provide. And so the first thing I started to pray for when I knew I had to leave was a house to rent in the Birmingham school district where I knew I could transition my children from private school. I wasn't sure how long that was going to be um, an option for them. They were in private Christian school to a, to a public school in, in a good school district. So I, and this is where I really saw God's hand. I prayed so specifically, and I would tell people to do this. Um, be very intentional about what you want the Lord to do or not do. I mean, he may not do either of those two options. You may see something completely different, but I think we need to be very specific about what we need. And so I, I asked for a house to rent between two mile roads on the west side of one of them. And I'm driving home from church one Sunday. And sure enough, here is a yard, a yard sign for rent staked into the lawn of this house that I have now lived in since September 11th, 1997. And I called the number on the signage and found out that the rent was quite pricey, but that the um, owner of the property's girlfriend was the, was the um, realtor who was managing the leasing of the property. And it turned out that she had helped us sell our other home and buy our second home. So she knew what was going on and really went to bat for me. And I had cobbled together enough cash that I paid for six months rent upfront in cash. And uh, then I started to pray very shortly after we moved in and settled in. I just asked God, could we just stay here till I get these kids raised? And here I am. I've been, they've grown and flown, so to speak. I'm trying to think how many years. My youngest son is 30. So 12 years past sort of bringing them to the age of maturity. We've, we've been here. And uh, then I would get wigged out and I would, I would go to the scripture verses that talk about God will give you the manna, what you need for today, that you're not to save and store things up. And so I started trusting that every day I would say, I have what I need for today. God has given me what I need for today. I cannot worry about tomorrow. And I use the verses where, you know, do you not see that he cares for the birds and, you know, all how all of nature is provided for. So that was very, very helpful. The other verse that kept me going was the Jeremiah 29, 11 verse, for I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, give you hope and a future. And I clung to those verses. During that time, 
Um, I moved out of the a Bible study at the church. I had some great support from women at the church that I was attending, but our divorce was um, one of the first divorces in this congregation and the family in which I had been married was a very large donor to the church. And um, I think that created some challenges. And while we were certainly cared for as members of the congregation, I think ultimately there were some things that it just made it better that we didn't stay there. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I will say that they, they supported me. Um, they counseled me. There were times when the counsel that I was getting, I didn't really like, but I followed it because I believed that um, that was the only way to go. And I had to put somebody else in authority over me, like a person, not just God. It had to be somebody with skin on. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's how I've lived. And I'm now in a different place in life where I have just received a five-year contract with the organization that I co-founded with my husband um, in the nonprofit space. And yet now my, my concern is around retirement and having the financial resources to either remain in this home, but, you know, live a, a somewhat comfortable life without worrying about money every moment. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, you answered yourself earlier by saying to pray specifically to God about that, because mm -hmm. it's so you're right. It's so cool when we do pray specifically, then when he answers it, and whether it's exactly the way we asked for or differently, we still are able to have our eyes open to the fact that it was God and only God who answered it. Because when we don't pray specifically, then we might wonder, well, was that God or was that just kind of by chance or an earthly thing that made that happen. But when we pray specifically to God and to God only, then when he does it, he gets all the credit and it should be that way because he is the one providing, he is the one blessing. And when we're able to see it, it just creates just a deeper well of love for him and for what he's capable of doing in our lives. Yeah, there was, I will tell you that <clears throat> I think that Christians and non-Christians, I think that um, being backed into a corner and being fearful often drives sin. Mm. And there was a point at which the landlord of this home wanted to sell the property. And we were six months into the lease, a year's lease. And he offered, he said, well, you know, I'd allow you to buy the property. Well, I was not divorced. I had no income. There had been some other financial issues that affected our credit report. My former husband filed bankruptcy. I did not, but I was still affected. And um, so the landlord suggested that my mother, who was at 80 at the time, um, buy our home. And then I knew she wouldn't do that, but he had suggested that she homestead the property, which somehow would have given her an advantage in acquiring a mortgage. So my mother said that she would acquire a mortgage on the condition that I would pay the monthly fee. Um, and I had set aside, curiously enough, I had set aside cash from all these things that I had sold and liquidated when I left my marriage that gave me enough money to make the down payment on the house, which was 
I had to make the 10% down payment, which was $32,000. So I had that. I mean, I had tucked that away, not knowing I was going to need it for that. But when they wanted her to homestead the property and she said no, um, I asked her to lie. And I was laying in bed that night after asking her to lie. And what came into my mind was, okay, you have just stepped over the line in sin. Like, this is not a little white lie. Like, does this dress make me look fat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was a real stepping over a legal line and an ethical line. And so I called my mother. I, I remember laying in bed and thinking, okay, if mom lies and we get the house, I have to live with a lie. And how is that going to play out? And if mom lies and we don't get the house, I, I'm either way, I'm screwed. That's what I remember thinking. Mm -hmm. and I, I could not do it. And so I called my mother up and I said, oh, mom, I, I cannot believe. And here I, you know, all these years have been talking to her about a, a, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which she never really grasped. Mm -hmm. And now I was behaving in a very unfaithful way. You know, I was not trusting and I was scared because I thought where are the kids are not going to go. And she said, well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm like, really? You're not? <laughs> You're... She said, well, I have another plan. And I said, well, what's that plan? And she said, well, I'm, I've invited the mortgage broker out for a cocktail on Monday night. So I think what she did is she just shared the circumstances that we were in and what she was prepared to do. And she got the loan. Wow. It's an 80 year old mother, an 80 year old person get a 30 year loan. I mean, even with the life expectancy now, I don't think that would happen. Wow. Well, God was up to something yeah. <laughs> clearly. Yeah. yeah. So I, it's, I talk a lot to my children and to other people about what causes us to step over sort of that line in the sand that we we said we we would never do as believers. And then I, I always think it's fear when we're backed into a corner and yeah, that's very insightful because I think you're right. That is what what pushes a lot of us over the edge to do something that we know is wrong. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we're just so scared that if we fall off the cliff, God isn't going to be there to catch us. Right. And I don't know why we fear that so much when you know, the, the Bible says us, he's everything. He will always catch us the Bible. And then not only does the Bible say that, but like, as we grow and know him, we see him step in time and time again to catch us. So yeah. I don't know why it's so hard to believe it, but that's just part of being human too, I think. So I think that one of the um, kind of skills that we need to do as believers is to write down every time God has stepped in. And every time we're fearful is to go to that place, whether it be a journal or a little jar of sticky notes or however you, you want to do it, to look back and read those those times when he stepped in just in time. Mm. And I, I hate to say this, but I think that just in time stepping in is purposeful because otherwise I think we would take credit for that ourselves. Yep. Definitely. I think that's a great idea. I love that. Cause when you need, when you're, when you're scared and you're like, okay, I feel like I could either 
sin and get this done or wait a little longer for the Lord, reaching into that jar or rereading that journal might give you just a little bit more hope to hang on a little longer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's a really great thought. I love that. And um, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but you did mention it already. So I would love to talk about it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your organization that you started and that you're currently running? Um, it's called the Pink Fund. Can you tell us what inspired you to start it and also a little bit about how people can get involved if they want to? So when I had to reenter the workforce after being out 12 years wiping butts and noses, I was 46 years old, which well, how many years ago is that? Like I'm I'm 72 now, so I don't do math, but it was a while ago. And 46, uh, you know, back in 1997 was considered old. Whereas at 72, I could still run for president. So I just laughed at how uh, how our um perspective of aging has has changed in terms of longevity and and productivity. So I had to reenter the workforce. I'd been in the newspaper business. That business was changing rapidly. I was not suited for the corporate world at all, where things were very siloed and political, and there were rules that weren't published. They had, you know, um, and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur, but I had in that, and I um, launched a few like short-lived small businesses. But in the spring of two thousand five, I was. I had moved into sales and I was selling large and grand format graphics like vehicle wraps and some of the very large banners and applications we see in primarily commercial spaces. And I was really, really good at it. And I liked it because I was coming up with more ideas on the marketing and branding for companies than just taking orders. So I would go in and present a plan of how to really expand their brand and attract attention in eye-catching ways. And this company that was under um, bidding me because they were out of state, so they weren't a union company, I approached them about hiring me to run a sales department for here in Detroit and then quit my job and got my mammogram. And my I'd never had a callback on a mammogram, but this year I had one. And so I had a biopsy. And on Friday, April 1st, I was in New York City pitching Major League Baseball for this new company that I was joining for the graphics program for the all-star game that was going to be played in Detroit that July. And I got the call in the cab on the way back to LaGuardia from my OBGYN who had delivered all five of my children, now delivering this news that this year in the U.S. is a death sentence for 40,000 women. So I was no longer really the right candidate to be part of a startup. And here again, this is where the ethical piece comes in and the faith piece I could have not told them about my diagnosis. They were in Kentucky and I was here. Um, I could have, because I was in sales, I could have managed my time easily. But I felt that I had an ethical obligation to go down and tell them. And so we agreed that this was not the right time to move forward. So that left me unemployed and essentially unemployable because you can't go get a job or have a job interview and say, oh, by the way, I have to have some surgery and some other treatment. And I'm, I may be tired, or I may be sick, or nobody wants to hire you under those circumstances. And so uh, I don't have a job and I don't have alimony and I don't have child support. And I now have a COBRA premium to ensure my access to treatment of $1,300 a month. 
and I had remarried this wonderful man. I call my husband, Tom Terrific, and he's in the luxury piano business. So his income, we relied on his income and my income, but with this Cobra premium and loss of my income, we were underwater fast. And so within three months, this house that I had rented for cash that my mother procured a mortgage on that I was making the payments on, I was unable to make those payments. So it goes into foreclosure. And um, every 58 days, the creditor for my leased vehicle was calling me asking if I was planning to make a payment or should they plan to repossess my vehicle, which was terrifying. And so I'm looking at homeless, potential homelessness. Again, I was still um, having challenges with my former husband in terms of an IRS lien because he didn't pay our uh, taxes one year. And then I was part of that, even though I was an innocent spouse, that lien was removed, I think in 2014. So we're in 2005. So this is nine years before that, that lien was removed on me. So, you know, now I have no job. I have poor credit because now this house is in foreclosure. Um, and my car payments are late. My utility payments are late. And I'm in these treatment waiting rooms with these other women. And I, started talking to them about my financial concerns and they were starting to express similar challenges. And theirs were somewhat more acute because they had later stage, more aggressive disease, more uh, physical side effects and longer treatment protocols. And so their concern was that their treatment protocol was gonna outlast their FMLA benefit, which meant, and for those who don't know what FMLA is, the Family Medical Leave Act, where you can take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for any reason if you work for a company of 50 or more employees in the United States and get your job back. So their concerns were that they were going to lose their job altogether. And they were talking about selling their houses, pulling their child home from college, liquidating their retirement funds if they had those, or the most egregious and most concerning and life-altering is stopping treatment altogether and going back to work. Mm. So. I thought this is bad. Um, I couldn't get any help for myself. I mean, I was offered like a $50 Kroger card through the social <laughs> worker at the hospital. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to give help. And so this was kind of this amazing epiphany that I know came from God that this circumstance in my life, which was extremely unpleasant and frightening, was going to propel me into a new purpose. So when we talk about that purpose-driven life, um, that's kind of what God just gave me as a gift. Those were the plans he had for me to give me hope, a future, and a purpose. Mm -hmm. So together with my husband, Tom, um, we bootstrapped this organization into existence. We traded, I had a beautiful Euro Saren in mid-century modern tulip table that I traded to the graphic designer for our heart and ribbon logo, we got a donated website. And then the medical writer at the Detroit Free Press um, did a really nice front page on what was then a, a section of the newspaper called the Women's Section, um, which launched us on October 2nd, 2006. And so we started going out. I started going out and speaking to any group that needed a free speaker. We raised money. Um, we were all volunteer worked out of the house. I still was working other part-time or full-time jobs until 2012. Um, 
when the board voted me a small salary so that I could really devote myself to the organization. And to date, we have paid out, I think by April, we will have paid out just over $7 million in bills to patients, creditors for housing, transportation, utilities, and insurance for 90 to 180 days. And while we are not solving this problem, which is known as financial toxicity, we're stabilizing families for a period of time with what we call a financial bridge program. That's amazing. Wow. That's that's so amazing. Are there um besides, like are there any other programs like yours out there? Or is this kind of a a new thought that that just doesn't really exist in our country right now? So I would say that in 2005, when I had this idea, we were, I would say, first to market. There's an organization called Cancer Care that um, has been in existence far longer. I don't know what kind of patient support programs they had back then, but they do have some now. Um, Many other breast cancer organizations have adopted programs where um, they provide limited support. But patients have to cobble together multiple resources. I will tell you that um, when I got started with this idea, I presented it to two people I trusted. Um, And within a year, those two people decided to move on without me. And that was more shocking than finding my home was going to be auctioned off at a sheriff's sale in 30 days, particularly considering one was my surgeon and the other was my neighbor. However, um, I, well, I struggled with that for a very long time and really distressed about it. Um, I arrived at the conclusion that it just wasn't a good fit. We weren't a good fit for each other. And so they are still um, providing support to women in Southeastern Michigan, but Pink Fund is a national organization. So helping Michigan women, but women all over the United States as well. And what I what I really realized is that um, I would not have been able to accomplish what we have on behalf of the, the population we serve had I remained with them. And that is not a discredit to them. It's just that I think the personalities involved weren't going to work well together. And to your point, God had a purpose and a plan for you mm-hmm. and he made it happen. And he also had one for them. And maybe this yeah. is the way he wanted it to unfold to service more people at the end of the day. And well, we actually refer to other organizations, including that one, um, because we know that patients need more help. What we do know about Pink Fund is we provide the highest amount of support, you know, money-wise and then duration of period. So three months to six months. Yeah, that's amazing. And if anybody like knows of someone who might want to either benefit from your organization and or give to your organization, can you tell us where they can find it and yeah. get? So the website pinkfund.org has everything there. You can click on get help and you can answer a few pre-qualifying questions. Give us your email and we'll send email you the application. So that's one of the things that distinguishes us from other organizations where they have to go to the social worker or the navigator in the provider setting. Both those are are fine. And we also, you know, our application, many social workers and, and navigators have that application, but by not requiring that they go through the healthcare provider, 
it does um, allow them a little bit of distance because saying you're in financial need is very hard. And many women are concerned that if they express that, that they won't get the best treatment. So um, our application is just simply emailed to you. We fund patients whose household income are at or below 500% of the federal poverty level. And that chart is right there under the get help tab on the website. And that allows us in some zip codes to rope in the middle class who would have been knocked out of most programs that are more around the 250% or below a federal poverty level. And in fact, when I was diagnosed, I was ineligible for Medicaid, which would have eliminated that COBRA premium solely because of my previous year's income which was in 2004, $60,000 a year, which put me above that 250%. So we wanted, we, we said, you know, the middle class is often knocked out of any support. And they're often as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable than people in, in lower classes who are, you know, can get Medicaid, can get food assistance, can get housing assistance. There's all those kind of supportive social mechanisms there. Um, then once we receive your application, it's reviewed by uh, a volunteer committee for funding, and then you're notified and your bills are paid directly to your creditors. People who want to give help, they can donate right on the website. If they um, would like to speak with me or have a Zoom meeting or come in and meet us personally, they can email me. It's molly with a Y at thepinkfund.org. And if they'd like to host a... Um, Another event. So a lot of our money comes from people who are hosting events for us all over the country. And I should say that we are not an event-driven organization. We don't have walks or runs. Um, we pre-COVID had one trademarked event, which is Dancing with the Survivors. And we're thinking about rebooting that again this year. But that that's more of an educational branding event. Um, most of our dollars come from these peer-to-peer -peer fundraisers, individual donors, grants, and corporate um, partnerships. And our largest partnership is with Ford Motor Company. We're in the 12th year of that partnership, which has been really significant, providing transportation assistance to patients and snap-on tools. That's amazing. Wow. I, I love that. And yeah, to anybody listening, if you have a creative way, you might want to partner up and, and get involved and or some personal donations, um, please head to the website and check it out because I think it's a great cause. I admire you so much for turning a really difficult, obviously, circumstance into something so beautiful. I just feel like you've really pressed on and persevered and just allowed God to create something really magnificent from your story. So um, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that for other people and for being an advocate. And we appreciate you coming on here to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. Right, everyone thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of sparkle speak as always you can find us at sparklefaith.com or head over to our partners at lifeaudio.com where you can hear more podcasts just like this one don't forget to check out our show notes to find all of our social media and as always don't forget to rate subscribe like share this with people that you think would enjoy hearing it really helps us more than you realize and allows us to keep doing what we love to do spreading the hope and love of christ with others so Thank you so much for being here and we will see you next episode. Bye. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. 
At the Story Behind Podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.